Welcome to a special retro rewind episode of the Venture Brothers podcast brought to you by Graphic Policy Radio uh, with me, Ilana Levin, and Dr. Stephen Atwell. Hello, Stephen. That's me. Hey. Hello. Now, for our listeners, do you love the Venture Brothers cartoon, but maybe you're a little bit afraid of missing the plethora of historical references and layers of meaning behind each episode? Join us as we go through all of the references and layers of meaning from the hit show. But, you know, this is, like I said, this is a little bit off season for Venture Brothers, uh, but we wanted to do something now because when we heard the Venture Brothers sh actual show was being canceled, we before it was completed, we were both really heartbroken and we wanted to do something for the fan community. Uh, it was also like eight minutes before the election when the news came. So I appreciate you waiting for us uh, to get this out. And we asked you, our listeners on Twitter, because hi, it was also eight minutes before the election and you were all on Twitter. Um, I asked which episode we should cover. And this consensus was, was pretty resounding. We're going to be covering to 20, year, 20 years to midnight. Um, and we're excited because this episode hits on so many of the things we love about the show. Character development dad issues, and Jack Kirby references. So buckle up and go Team go Venture. Go Team Venture. And this is like, what, season two, episode 15 or something thereabout? Uh, I have it sometimes as episode five. I think this okay. is one where it was not aired in specific order. Let me double check. Got it. But this is a this is a season two midway through episode, folks. And um. As per usual, 100% spoilers, because why else would you be listening to this show? Um, but start us off, Stephen, with the, the name of this episode. Sure. So the title of the episode, uh, 20 Years to Midnight, is a reference uh, to Two Minutes to Midnight. Um, so if you're familiar with the uh, logo of the Watchmen with the clock, with the minute hand almost at midnight... Uh, that is a reference to a real thing called the Doomsday Clock, which was unveiled in the 1980s by the Union of Concerned Scientists. Uh, that was largely about uh, trying to dramatize the dangers of an uh, intentional or unintentional nuclear exchange uh, between the United States and the Soviet Union. And it really sort of stuck around as one of the more successful kind of branding exercises done by a political group in that era. That's true. And if folks are interested in doing something around that issue, uh, Beyond the Bomb is a really cool organization working on nuclear disarmament and um, friends of mine, and you should check them out. Um, the other thing I thought of when I thought of the name of this episode, though, was the popular Iron Maiden song, Two Minutes to Midnight, which is also about nuclear arms. <laughs> um, so the opening of the show really harkens back to Predator for me. Um, the, you know, when you begin, you're sort of, you have this moment of looking through the lens, uh, through the, the, the viewfinder of the weapon of the baddie, who in this case is, um, you know, like the, the Predator himself. But uh, in this particular episode, the Predator is a little bit different than the Predator movie. Um, in fact, the the character who you're about to start seeing from is reminded me a lot of the sort of monsters, aliens from space um, sort of vibe from Jack Kirby's comics. Um, we, we mentioned his name a lot here, assuming people know, but 
for folks who don't, like he's basically the co-creator of the entire Marvel universe. Most of the characters that you can think of are are from him. Um, and in fact, this opening sequence reminded me a bit of the old horror comic where he introduced the original character Groot, who did not talk back in those this uh, did, who did not talk by saying Groot back in those days. He was basically a big scary tree monster. But basically, there's a, a sci-fi horror vibe to this beginning of the episode. And when we actually do get to see the this uh, predatory being who, uh, whose perspective we've been introduced through, um, it's the Grand Galactic Inquisitor. And that character is a huge thing in fandom. He is the giant with gorgeous design elements that shouts, ignore me, which is basically like the key. It really became like the catchphrase of the show for the longest time. Like if you just looked at somebody and said, ignore me, that was that was the thing from the show. But what was so amazing, like about that catchphrase itself is there, you know, is this coming from the tradition of comics by, by Jack Kirby. And um, specifically this visually harkens to the characters from the eternal series who had this series of all knowing uh, space gods who were unfathomable to mere mortals um, they are always in these big ar- armored forms where it's unclear if like the armor is their body or if their body is inside it. Um, and they don't have faces in the traditional sense. Um, and those are sent down from space to judge humanity to determine if it should uh, be allowed to continue to exist or not. One of the characters specifically is called Erisham the Judge. And he's got like this giant finger with Kirby design circuits on it. And he gives Earth thumbs up or thumbs down. Um, and this is all inspired by a book called Chariots of the Gods by Eric von Daniken, who uh, wrote some very specious um, anthropological, archaeological history that no one should take seriously, but was popular at the time that Jack Kirby was creating these com- the, the, this series. Yeah. But I also think the specific ignore me like as the catchphrase words reminds me of another Kirby character, which is the watcher who sits in space and tells and like watches what humans do on earth, but is not allowed to interfere and keeps telling people that he's not allowed to interfere, but keeps interfering anyway. Right. Because such is the nature of being alive is wanting to interfere with things. Yeah. I was also going to say, this is not a, a Kirby creation, but it is a Marvel creation is um, the, way that the Grand Galactic Inquisitor switches between faces, like the different colored lenses that his head rotates through, reminded me a lot of the Living Tribunal, which is actually a Steve Ditko creation from Doctor Strange comics. And similarly, the whole thing with the Living Tribunal is that, like, he judges Earth on whether it's good or evil and then destroys it uh, or not. Um, so that had a, a strong, um, sort of suggestion there. Uh, I'd mm-hmm. also add the overlords from Arthur C. Clarke's childhood end have the, you know, they're like 12 foot tall and have the two thumbs on opposite sides of the hands thing. Huh. So additional sort of sci-fi horror elements. And it just really lives in that vibe. I think that's one of the things that makes the episode so appealing. That and just the design is so gorgeous. But and if you look at these Jack Kirby comics, like, yeah, this is the design from there. Um, He introduces himself with this big booming voice that like is deafening. And he's like, says, he's like saying, welcome to the glorious moment of judgment. Um, And 
What's so funny is like, while most people witnessing this unfathomable giant space alien would be concerned about what kind of apocalyptic judgment might be befalling them, our protagonist, Dr. Rusty Venture, is preoccupied thinking about a different kind of judgment that he's concerned with, and that's the judgment of his father. Because right like immediately before the, the Galactic Inquisitor makes his presence loudly known, he's looking at a video um, of Jonas Venture Sr., and what's so funny is like Hank and Dean are like, look, it's grandpa. And, and, um, but, 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 but Rusty is like, oh, fuck, it's dad. He can see me. Um, and like they, they, the, the boys, of course, have their little pop culture reference say, grandpa's trapped in the Phantom Zone, which is, you know, a reference to Superman. You might know it from Superman too, but it's actually from the 19th, going back to 1961. It's a dimension that people can get sent into or retrieved from a dimension in space that's sort of like a stasis that they get sent to. Um, so uh, it was that, that and, and, and you can send people there or send them back, which is an interesting foreshadowing for yeah, the actual... Go it's ahead. basically yeah. the naughty corner dimension. <laughs> but it's also sort of like a pre, it's like, I don't know. And in retrospect, like knowing what we know about Rusty Venture's dad, like it's interesting to think about him being in a place where he can be transported there or back through space. Mm. Yeah. So this brings us to sort of our next big theme of the episode, which is this idea of parental abandonment and parental judgment. Because as you said, like the idea is grandpa's trapped in the phantom zone. He's not around. Um, we're not going to learn why he's not around and where he actually is um, for some uh, seasons to come. But you already get the sense that like his not being around and even, you know, when you see that little flashback to um, Jonas Venture hearing the transmissions and, like, his son is playing The Floors Made of Lava and, like, his father, you know, treats this as, like, an, in you know, an in massive inconvenience uh, that his son is, like, trying to get him interested in his play. Um you definitely get the sense that like Rusty has had this feeling of not really being worthy of his dad's attention and respect for pretty much his whole life. And we hear some thoughts about a different dad not long after. Yeah. So um, this episode also gives us action Johnny slash Johnny quest for the first time, which is, we're going to get into in the character development section. It's kind of a trip. Um, but like he's immediately shown to be very messed up specifically about his father, that the moment the word father comes up, it like immediately triggers him into a kind of boogie night style, you know, flashing his gun at people, you know, on the verge of, of firing off. Um, and you get the sense that, like, Johnny is just the more visibly not okay version of Rusty. Like, Rusty is right there below the surface. Like, he's got this patina of, like, oh, can I make any money off of Dad's invention thing? Um, but, like, the moment that he has any... He's faced with any emotional uh, stakes, he just falls to pieces. 
And that's we and we get to see some of that subconscious this episode where we have what the, the dream that we see Rusty have in this issue. I feel like this is another like super just iconic moment for the show. Um, and uh, so if you want to talk about that, but like basically you have him in his dream, he's flying and he is. Uh, he has an umbilical cord coming out of his body that is tethered to his dad's penis, which we can tell is on the large size because of the way the censorship block goes. And he, his dad is like cutting off the, the umbilical cord and he, and Jonas Venture Jr., his brother, who we only recently was introduced to the show as an actual character, is like all there being like, this is great. Everything's fine. Also has a bigger dick than him. Um, yeah. And, well, specifically uh, is the yeah. one running away with the umbilical slash sort of kite string. Is that And like, he's sort of because he's worried that he's losing his father's legacy to his brother. Yeah. That his brother is gonna be the real heir to that legacy, which is yeah, yeah, frankly true, actually, but um still to be played out. But in such a fun cause then you 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 realize like it rolls back for a second and you hear the Galactic Inquisitor saying, That was a weird one. And so it's not just us who watched the dream. The Galactic Inquisitor is also watching your dreams and judging you, which is really the last thing you want. Yeah. And then, so, of course, the the theme of parental abandonment and judgment kind of crescendos when at the end of the episode, we have an alien pretending to be his dad who sort of saves the day, uh, which is very much a reference to the movie Contact, where an alien appears as Dr. Jodie Foster's dad because supposedly that's more comforting when I, I don't know anyone that would be more comforting <laughs> to. No. Um, and like, I think they rightfully call it out. It's like incredibly emotionally manipulative and traumatic. And um, what's interesting in that moment is that like Rusty fully regresses to being seven. Like he, he says, Papa. You know, he's just like, you know, constantly or not constantly. He's, you know, instantly, you know, regresses. And it's Jonas who, Jr. who is like a little bit more hesitant because like he's now faced with, you know, the face to face version of a dad that he's never met who doesn't really know that he exists and might not want to have any connection with him. Yeah, that's it's it's a it's a this episode is just an amazing episode. I think it's probably one of the best episodes of the show, best early episodes of the show. Yeah, I was going to say uh, I, I was thinking about this earlier. Like it's almost a perfect like if you had to hand an an episode to someone who's not seen the show before, it works as a great kind of explainer. Is like this is the kind of thing that if you're into, you're gonna love this show. Like, it even gives you a really entertaining, abbreviated rundown of the existence of Jonas Venture Jr. as delivered to you by the pirate. Like, I, he's like, what, what, what is that bit? Uh, it's, you know, um, on account of your dad ate him when he was wee. Yeah, exactly. Like, it gives you all of that background to understand it. Um, so, yeah, the other neat thing about them having Action Johnny in this episode is... When the show was first launched, especially like you've got the walking eye, it was very, very clearly like this is a riff on Johnny Quest. 
But the show isn't just that. And by having actual Johnny Quest be present in this episode, it makes the point that this isn't just a send-up of Johnny Quest. Because if, because if actual Johnny Quest exists in this world, then that means that Rusty Venture and his family are not the Quests. Um, I had a comment from listener Joshua Daniel, who does really cool cartoons. Um, he said, I also think this episode is one of the first that was more action-based and more focused on its own mythos rather than just being extended parodies of 80s adventure cartoons. Um, mm. And, I, you know, I haven't seen this vis-a-vis where the, the show pivots, but, like, that does make sense to me. Although there is a uh, 80s cartoon reference throughout this, which is when they have that Super Friends, Starburst, Go Team Venture image coming in and out of the screen with all the different team-ups that we see. But um, one of the things that well, we really get in this episode is we get a good establishment of Jonas Venture Jr.'s character for the first time. And the way they introduce him in, you know, Spider-Skull Island, and you see his, like what he's done with his home, it says a lot about him. Um, in fact, I when the second they get into the, his room and you see the paintings on the wall, I said... Okay, that's a fucking Picasso. I wasn't sure which Picasso it was, so I looked it up in image search, and it is woman sitting in an armchair from 1941. Uh, let me tell you, that painting cost a fuck ton of money, um, but it also reflects the specific kind of access to money and taste that Jonas Venture Jr. might have had. I mean, maybe maybe this was dad's painting that got brought in there. I don't know, but that man's got a Picasso, a cubist Picasso painting. Uh, as well as Waterfall by Arshil Gorky from 1943. Like, that's stuff you'd see in MoMA. Um, and other, sorry, Museum of Modern Art. And other things you would see in the Museum of Modern Art are, in fact, the chairs that we see. It's one of the models of the egg chair, uh, originally conceived by Arnie Jacobson, the designer. Um, it was specifically made for Radisson SAS Hotel in Copenhagen, 1958. Uh, really was like presaged 1960s, pop modern like interior design like but this is one of the most important chairs of the 20th century <laughs> um yeah. and if it's and it's so much this show's aesthetic you know yeah and i was gonna say like those things really suit jonas venture jr because like he's introduced as being very international in that kind of you know we've talked before mm-hmm. about how venture brothers has this whole kind of relationship with modernism where, you know, most of the show is kind of, um, you know, casting a, a caustic eye on the kind of modernist idea that like, oh, everything's going to be cool and, you know, space engines and, you know, all that neat stuff. And, you know, I feel like the modernist design movement is very much part of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we also see Jonas Venture Jr. Like he's hooking up with a supermodel that he met at like a Latin American super science event that his brother was not invited to. Um, he's way more comfortable in this world of kind of uh, international modernism than Rusty ever could, who is, you know, uh, for better or for worse, a child of the 1970s. That makes sense. Yeah. You know, and the woman who he's been hooking up with, who kind of does look like Polynesian, which, uh, you know, international. And she's like talking about how he met her at Ibiza. Like he's a jet setting guy. Um, Another big character 
thing in this episode uh, is the return of the Impossible family. Um, you know, we see them in one of the first episodes of the show, uh, Ice Station Impossible, which is, I think, the first episode of the show that I ever saw. Um, and of course, I was immediately into it because I was like, oh, my God, it's the Fantastic Four if they were fucking terrible. Uh, Sally Impossible is, you know, Sue Storm from the Fantastic Four. And the show has taken her powers to their non-useful conclusion. So in the comics, Sue Storm gets the power of invisibility. And as feminism became stronger, developed a set of other powers adjacent to it. But in this show, uh, rather than becoming invisible, which like, is a useful superpower. Her superpower is her skin becomes invisible, making her, her internal organs visible, i.e. a fairly useless superpower and a superpower that makes her, at least while it's active, visually unattractive. And like popular culture does not know what to do with unattractive women. It tends to resist creating superhero women who aren't beautiful. Like it just is allergic to it. Mm-hmm. And so I love this like, we're going to give her these powers. We're going to make them useful and we're going to make them ugly uh, is like a really interesting commentary on the, uh, on the material there. And um, one of the moments I love is that when Sally gets angry, her powers flare up and make her musculature and bones and skin and organs visible. And so when she's arguing with Reed Richards, um, AKA, you know, Dr. Impossible, Impossible, she's her, her powers like flare up and he goes, Sally, you're visible. And him like reprimanding her for not being able to control her powers that he gave her through his clumsy accident um, and demanding her be subservient and traditionally beautiful at all times is like, yep, sexism. Um, there's definitely a real feminine mystique happening there. Um, and there's, uh, you know, I also think that I just couldn't get past is like, Sally Impossible is like the one woman who actually is attracted to Rusty Venture. So of course he can't stand her, right? Like, because he doesn't actually care about women. He just wants to like be desired. Um, And it's almost like because she likes him, he can't possibly actually be interested in her. Um, There's a little bit of a, you know, in the comics, Invisible, Invisible Woman has an ongoing affair with Namor, the king of the sea. Uh, And so it's sort of interesting, like, because there's some, well, Stephen will get to some of these questions in a moment, but there's a lot of layers happening with this. Um, Another Fantastic Four reference that was fun is in the original time that we see the Impossible family um, there's her brother who's like literally on fire. And of course, because in real life being on fire would be terrible as opposed to being the human torch, uh, he's dead. Um, and so in this animated show, we have Huggy Robot, who is a riff on Herbie Robot. Herbie Robot is in the Fantastic Four cartoon show from the 60s. They did not want kids to set themselves on fire. So they had Herbie Robot instead of Johnny Storm, because they thought kids would set themselves on fire if they saw a man on fire character in the cartoon. And in this, they've made him Huggy Robot, who is a robot who's been built by um, Impossible to uh, to show emotional affection for his wife and child, which he is incapable of doing. So uh, one of the things that I really like the way that they build out the Impossibles in this episode is that we've seen... Richard as like a neglectful husband before this is where we really see him as a bad dad as like someone who does not can't remember his son's name doesn't know where he is clearly considers it the woman's job to keep track of it 
And, um, you know, when his son is in danger, is like, well, science is more important than family. And uh, to me, this raises the interesting question. You know, you brought up Namor. I've always been of the firm belief that uh, Franklin Richards is Namor's kid. It explains why he is a mutant. Are you listening, Dan Slott? <laughs> um, yes. And of course, Rocket has kind of rusty brown hair. Uh, not that unsimilar to um, Rusty Venture. And yeah. you know, we know that the Venture men tend to spread it around and that Rusty, you know, doesn't really use uh, sexual protection uh, even when he's sleeping with an overly attached uh, groupie figure who he doesn't really want a long-term relationship with. Yeah, what a piece of shit. Um, yeah. I think you're right, Stephen. I think there's a good chance that Rocket is a venture. The other thing that Rocket is, is he's the namesake of my late cat. Um, Rocket Impossible was the name of my cat who we found because he was wandering in the streets and he was clearly a baby. And so when you find a baby wandering in the streets, of course, a Venture Brothers fan is going to think of Rocket from the Rocket, the baby from um, the Venture Brothers who is also a baby wandering the streets. This breaks my heart that that is my boy's origin story, but he did get to live a full and furry life once we've rescued him. Speaking of wandering around the streets of New York, there's a surprising amount of New York City stuff in this episode for a back period of the show before the show moved to New York. Um, one of those things is the presence of Impossible Plaza, which used to be Venture Industries and is based on the Pan Am building uh, to an extent, um, that was designed by Walter Gropis, Pietro Belushi, Emery Roth of Emery Roth and Sons. And there was another building that you said it was evoking, Stephen, right? Uh, yes, it was the Grace Building. Over, over, over in like, um, like 40th and like 3rd Avenue thereabouts? Yeah, 42nd, uh, somewhere around like, I would say, 5th Avenue. Yeah. So really like actual real New York architecture. Um, and of course, Impossible Plaza does recall back to Fantastic Four's building in the comics, which is the Baxter building, similarly located in New mm -hmm. York. Um, so one of my favorite New York moments in this episode is the bit where um, Rusty and Sally have their clandestine meeting on the subway. And Sally's saying like, you know, pinch me because I must be dreaming. And all of a sudden, a homeless guy leans over and is like, it's okay, lady, I see him too. And, you know, to me, like, having a conversation on the subway get, you know, added to slash interrupted by a third party who wasn't in the original conversation is, you know, one of the most quintessential New York City moments. So true. And they did a great job depicting the subway. Um, they specifically uh, show later when, when you have a, when they actually have a bit of a, a showdown with um, Doctor Impossible. Um, they, uh, so you can see the train specifically is the V train at Fifth Avenue, and that's a bit of a time capsule because the V train is no more. The V train existed for a while, um, and. Uh, 
I actually was on the very last V train in the history of New York. Um, my friends figured out when that would be, and they threw a subway party. And oh my God, I really miss subway parties. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, like we basically just brought out the boom boxes and like decorated this train car and played music and danced in the subway uh, as it made its very last trip. And the only person who got arrested was my friend's little brother because he did some graffiti. Not eh. The rest of us unscathed. And God, someday we will return to the days of subway parties again. The train rest in peace. Indeed. There's another, just a few random pop culture moments we want to shout out to that are um, sort of random, but definitely you guys are here to hear from us about them. Um, although I will make a fashion note that uh, in the beginning of the episode, when you have through the Punisher view, not Punisher, from the uh, Predator view of like the compound, and you can see that Doc is naked on the toilet. Doc is naked on the toilet because you actually have to take your speed suit off to poop. Like that's the problem with jumpsuits. Like what's good about jumpsuits is that they're awesome. But what's bad about jumpsuits is like they're kind of hard to go to the bathroom. So that is why Doc is naked at that moment. Um, a, a famous pop culture reference for this episode that I think a lot of people like didn't actually know was real until we began explaining it to people is the explanation that Doc makes upon witnessing the Grand Galactic Alien of Judgment which is Ladysmith Black Mombazo. Ladysmith Black Mombazo, who was an actual real band that was quite significant um, and came to prominence internationally uh, as the musicians who collaborated with Paul Simon on the album Graceland. Graceland was a huge deal when I was a little kid. It was like a number one bestseller and completely ubiquitous. I think I listened to my tape so many times it busted itself. One of the things that's interesting, though, is like the way it was packaged at the time was like, oh, Paul Simon is like calling attention to these amazing artists from South Africa. And um, isn't that great how he's like, quote unquote, discovering them, which is like very colonizer mindset. But the other piece of contrib- the other piece of this, though, is that like there was a reason that we hadn't heard a lot of South African artists in America at the time, which was that there was a cultural boycott of South Africa. Um, and there was a big fight within the musician community in America between Paul Simon and um, Little Steven of the E Street Band slash Little Steven's Underground Garage, where Little Steven had been part with groups who were supporting there being an ongoing boycott of South Africa, including cultural products. Um, whereas Paul Simon was like, no, we want to introduce this to America um, and that will actually be helpful for South Africa. And I would love someone to tell me, like, what is their expert assessment of which approach was the right one? Um, I I do not have that, but it's a good political question to debate. Another pop culture moment uh, is, uh, like, when the Galantic Inquisitor is, like, looking at the the memory box, the almost time capsule of Doc's youth, and they end up seeing that... Um, there, he wrote a fan, the Doc Venture wrote a fan letter, what I think is a fan letter to the Herculoids, but actually really was calling them hippies and admonishing them for not participating in the Vietnam War. Um, and that's hilarious because that is a Hanna-Barbera, like ridiculously animated cartoon, but based on, you know, beautiful initial designs by Alex Toth, the comics artist, um, very Although much of his a- period. It's a weird one for fighting in Vietnam because, like, 
there's only one adult male human on that show. <laughs> and he's like a dad who's clearly at least in his 30s, if not 40s. So I'm sort of well, like, like, okay, yeah. the mom isn't going to go fight in Vietnam. The baby isn't going to go fight in Vietnam. Like, is he talking about the, the dinosaurs? I don't know, man, but they're all hippies. It's an interesting note of like cluelessness as a child, though. That's for sure. Yeah. I know that when the, like using Jesus Jones as an exclamation upon discovering the under sh underwater shuttle, but then immediately segueing into explaining the actual band is a particularly fun gag because, you know, we, this is an episode where somebody uses Ladysmith Black Mombazo as an, as an exclamation and then doesn't explain anything about them, but then says, Jesus Jones, and then actually immediately goes and explains them to you. And Jesus Jones were a British band that had a really big hit in 1991 called Right Here, Right Now. And what's so funny is the description that the ghost pirate gives of them is exactly how like anybody in the media would have discussed them at the time. She's saying like, uh, we thought they were the future of rock and roll in the year 1991. And they didn't really go on to anything big of significance after that, although they did have some other songs that charted and that I do remember. But like they were Best New Artist Award winners at the MTV Music Awards. That song was so ubiquitous and like nothing is more 1991 than that. Um, another fun character we see in here is Colonel Gentleman, who's really like the show's mashup of Alan Quartermain and William H. Burroughs. Sure. So Alan Quartermain, I mean, speaking of like, my God, colonialist fiction, Alan Quartermain is the great white hunter. Like he is the source from which all of those my whitey, we, you know, we can do it better. King Solomon's minds stuff comes from. Oh yes, and the and the author is H. Ryder Haggard, book from nineteen sorry, eighteen eighty five. Um, and you know, like you'll see him in he he was in uh you know gets brought back in the Alan Moore's and you know all those comics. Um, and uh and the Burroughs reference is like the doing drugs in Tangiers piece yeah. of it, and you know having like big gig orgies. Well, and uh, the crazy diary. And the crazy fuck, yeah, and the crazy diary. Interestingly, the, the reason there is a crazy diary is that, um, and I read this in the notes, the show notes of the beautiful Venture Brothers hardcover book called The Art and Making of the Venture Brothers, uh, which was given to me as a gift by frequent guest of the podcast, um, uh, John Arminio. Thank you, John. Um, they, they, they were saying in this that they actually used... Uh, writing as Colonel Gentleman as a ice breaking like writer's block avoidance tool. Like they wrote an entire twelve pages of Colonel Gentleman's diary at, uh, as that's Colonel Gentleman telling you the story of his journey to a bathhouse. Like they wrote twelve pages of that when they had writer's block. Good so Lord. just sort of getting into his head and writing ridiculous stuff is like a writing technique for them. Um, and. and it, it's like Colonel Gentleman's list of toys he wishes he had when he was a kid, but weren't invented yet. One of which being Micronauts, which um, were funny because I, I they like actually spawned some pretty good Marvel comics, although I've never played with them. Um, he also lists Hollywood actresses who need a smack in the mouth, which is a reference to Sean Connery, who would like smack women in the mouth and was a violent, sexist piece of shit. 
Um, yeah. And of course, the accent for Colonel Gentleman is like a Sean Connery voice, basically. And speaking of voice actors, this is the one of the episodes where we have Stephen Colbert uh, doing Reed Richard doing. Um, I keep saying Reed Richards. Um, Richard Impossible. Doing Richard Impossible's voice, yes, and nailing it. Yeah, and it's you know kind of interesting because apparently. Um, you know, he doesn't do all of the, the Richard Impossible. I mean, especially in the later seasons, uh, they had to get someone who could do a decent Colbert uh, doing Richard Impossible. Um, but, uh, you know, you've you've listened to the um, the commentary. What did they say it was like to work with him? Oh, they just said that he was like the penultimate professional just came in, hit his marks and like nailed it and everybody was just like that man is very talented um it's got to so, be that improv training yeah yeah and they reminded me that you know he'd been in that show strangers with candy and how good he'd been in that oh god yeah um you know and uh, what well, you know in the episode when you see uh richard impossible getting all stretched out like and like overextending his powers it kind of looked like the dune navigators or like what's that thing from um doctor who where the people are all flat and the humans are all flat in the future oh oh the last of the um well there's the face of Bo, but also the last like quote-unquote pure human in i think the second episode of of the new doctor who is just mm-hmm. like she's done so much plastic surgery that she's just a giant sheet of skin on a on a frame I forget her yeah. name though, that character. But that but that that's what it looked like to me. It is a it is a very horrific image without being gory at all. Very interesting. Yeah. Although, you know, uh, anything's made better by Britney Spears Toxic. Wait, what does that have to do with it? Uh it is the song that she chooses to serenade the destruction of planet Earth. Wait, who does that? In that episode of Doctor Who. Oh, okay. Yeah, I did not really remember that. Cool beans. Um, so we have one listener question, which I will pose to you. It is, um, if there had been more pieces to gather, what other auxiliary characters would you have liked to see in a world-hopping team-up? Ooh, that's a really tricky question. I guess I would like to have maybe worked in more of the action team. Um, but that mm. might have been somewhat duplicative of what they did with, um, I was going to say they folded it into like Orb and uh, the funeral episode. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. My thought was, because, you know, most of the characters like, really hadn't been introduced yet, but whatever, what would have been cool would have been, Triana with Billy and Mr. White and I'd want the three of them together and they would like nerd out about music um, because they never really got to have a conversation and like I don't know I don't want them to be like creepy to her about her being a girl because she's a teenager and they're grown-ups but like I know that that White and Triana have bands in common she's like basically wearing an Adam Ant t-shirt and he's like an 80s new wave DJ they're both very goth and and I think that that would be a lot of fun to have that conversation. Sounds good. Well, thank you to our listeners for sending in questions. Um, 
you know, I there's a always a possibility that the show will get picked up by HBO. Um, you know, like there was some tweet with someone from HBO about how fans had expressed interest in that very politely. You know, there, I, I think there's a chance that we might get like at least like a, a finale, like a special that would close out the series. Fingers crossed. Yeah, yeah. Or and, Veed, until then, as the you case know, may we, be. Yes, and you know we'll we'll definitely be back. We'll do we'll be we'll be doing some more of these episodes for you guys of all their other older episodes that we never got to cover on the show before. Um, so, listeners, we I want to hear from you. I'm on Twitter a little bit too much at e l a n a underscore Brooklyn. That's e l a n a underscore Brooklyn. Elana Brooklyn, and uh, you know this podcast is on Graphic Policy Radio on all the podcast platforms. Please review us. We have not gotten that many reviews from y'all, and it really does help. And where can our listeners find you, Stephen? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Stephen Atwell. You can find me at raceforthearonthrone.wordpress.com. Uh, and at raceforthearonthrone.tumblr.com for my Game of Thrones, Song of Ice and Fire coverage. Oh, and of course, graphic policy uh, uh, for my People's History of the Marvel Universe series. So that's just pretty much a fucking amazing series. And that's Stephen with a V, folks. Do not forget. Yes. So as we like to say, <laughs> go Team Venture Brothers podcast. Oh. Sorry, I I looked away. <laughs> and as we like to say, go team venture, venture brothers podcast. Pod- podcast. 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 <laughs>